a couple of years ago, I coached my son's t-ball team. And coaching t-ball is often described as herding cats. And it's a fitting description. Uh, coaching is probably a generous uh, term for t-ball. Uh, but it's fun. Uh, because at that level, it really is just about having fun with the kids. Um, also introducing them to just the game of baseball in very general ways, um, teaching them the basics. But there's no pressure to win. You don't even keep score. Uh, there's no pressure to be the star or to perform at a high level. And that's fine. It's t-ball. But suppose that some t-ball players kept this attitude as they progressed through the ranks of baseball. And as they kept going and they played in high school and then college and then they wanted to go pro, um, they continued to have this attitude of, eh, it's just about having a good time. I don't really want to put too much effort forward. I don't really care about our team's performance. I'm just trying to have a good time. Well, they're not going to make it, right? And they're also going to look pretty foolish. They would appear to be small-minded, unaware of what's going on, unaware of the stakes, unaware of even the rewards and joys that come from working hard and giving yourself to something, even if you're having a good time, that there, there's more to it than that. So the t-ball mindset is great for t-ball. It's out of place, though, in professional baseball. Well, I think there is a temptation for us to live our lives in a similar way. We go through life as if the stakes are no higher than just having a good time. That's really all that's going on in this life. And we're unaware of what is really going on around us, what is really going on, what is really at stake in this life. And so we think of God, if we think of him at all, as just distant, disengaged, insignificant, not very meaningful, we think of his love and kindness as really not that all that great, even, if, even though we may talk about it. We think of his justice and perfections and holiness as not that serious, or sin not that serious. And eternity, if we believe in it at all, has little relevance to this life. We're just having a good time. And so our choices and our actions and our loves and our devotion are really not that significant. It's very easy to have this sort of complacency and small-mindedness in this life. Uh, the Bible uses a term like drunken stupor um, to describe this. Well, the words of the prophets that we've been going through um, do a really good job of ripping us out of that. They get right to the heart of that sentiment that that belief, ripping us out of this drunken snooper, stupor and small-mindedness. And they do this by both pointing to, on the one hand, the fierceness of God's holiness and anger towards sin, and on the other hand, the surprising abundance of his love and kindness. And so through the prophets and really through the whole Bible as well. God is pulling us out of this small-minded approach to life and showing us that there is so much more at stake, that life is vastly more weighty 
and significant and alive and urgent than we realize. We're not in T-ball anymore. And Zephaniah that we're in today does this in particularly striking ways. It is kind of the quintessential of the prophets. It, con- it begins with and contains some of the most terrifying words of God's anger and judgment towards sin in Scripture. And then it ends, as, we, as I read earlier, it's some, with some of the most wonderful words of God's mercy and kindness and affections towards his people in Scripture. It's startling, the, 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 the drastic difference between these dispositions. And our goal today is to lean into both of these, to feel the weight of both of them together, not to minimize one or the other. To, if this is who God is, our goal is to discover the glory of the God who is more righteously and appropriately angry at sin and evil than we realize and worthy of worship because of it, and who is more gracious and loving and kind and compassionate than we realize. And I think, actually, than we realize. And worthy of worship and trust because of it. Okay? So we're going to go through Zephaniah. We're not going to read the whole, it's three chapters. We won't read the whole thing, but we'll hit kind of the high points. Um, Zephaniah follows the pattern that we've seen repeatedly through the Minor Prophets. It begins with um, an announcement of judgment towards sin. Then there's an offer of repentance to escape judgment, and then a promise of God's salvation and a a description of his plan to establish a people who are are faithful to him. Okay, so we'll kind of go through these three things. So first we begin with a word of judgment. Verse, we'll read a couple sections here. Chapter 1, verse 1, starting at the beginning, and we'll jump down a little bit. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Jump down to verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither this, their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord in the fire of his jealousy. All the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of the inhabitants of the earth. All right. Some hard words, some very 
weighty words that are difficult to, I think we can all agree, difficult to grasp, difficult to accept. Um, I mean, consider some of the ways that something that is coming ultimately from God's hands is described. Bitter, wrath, distress, anguish, ruin, devastation, gloom. Now, thankfully, this is not the totality of God's character. Thankfully, this is the this is the beginning of Zephaniah. This is not the last word of Zephaniah, and this is not the last word of the Bible. We, we must move on, but we do need to sit here a bit. This is a part of God's character testified to throughout Scripture, Old and New Testaments, by the prophets, by Jesus himself. But I think one of the things that's important to notice, and this may seem obvious, but it's a good route to go down, is that God's anger and judgment is a response Right? It's a response to something, namely human sin and rebellion and evil. In other words, the Bible doesn't portray God as just out there looking for any and every opportunity to, to be angry and to strike down vengeance on, on us, just hoping that he can find any excuse to do this. It also doesn't portray him as uncontrollably angry, like we often are, and where we kind of contribute to increasing cycles of violence No, the Bible portrays God as so perfect, so committed to what is good and right and true and life-giving that he proportionately and perfectly hates all that is evil and unrighteous and untrue and life-stealing. And we can understand this to a degree, just as the more pure our hearts are, the more appropriately they react to evil. When we hear of abuse or oppression, we, we respond with a kind of righteous indignation that is good and appropriate. So with God, only, it's not a perfect example because God is not just a passive observer of evil in the world. He is the one to whom everyone will ultimately give an account and he is ultimately responsible for bringing justice in this world. So God's anger and wrath are related to his commitment to goodness and rightness and perfection. And what are struggles when we struggle with God's judgments? What they really reveal is our small-minded and insufficient views of sin. We don't think sin is really all that serious, especially our own. God's response seems inappropriate because we fail to wrestle with the darkness of our own hearts apart from God's saving and changing grace. Um. Pastor and author Dane Ortland puts it well. He says, and then quotes from Martin Lloyd-Jones, the reason we feel as if divine wrath can easily be overstated is that we do not feel the true weight of sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones, reflecting on this, said, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves. And we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There is only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. And then Ortland goes on, if we saw with deeper clarity just how insidious and pervasive and revolting sin is, and as Lloyd-Jones suggests above, we can see this only as we see the beauty and holiness of God. We would know that human evil calls for an intensity of judgment of divine proportion. So there's a connection, he's saying, between seeing God for who he is, 
seeing God in all of his beauty and holiness and perfections and agreeing with his assessment and his response to sin. And so consider what is going on here in Zephaniah. Consider the nature and extent of the sin that's being called out and of which God is responding to. Um, We are told that they had turned back from following the Lord. And they were turning to idols, to false gods. Uh, One of the kings that had ruled in Judah, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, just before this time, Manasseh, was notoriously wicked. And he erected um, altars to pagan gods all around uh, the kingdom, even in the temple in Jerusalem, uh, where God was meant to be worshipped. He'd erected temples to these other gods. He used fortune-telling and omens and mediums and necromancers. And he even burned his own son as an offering to one of these idols. Now, when we think of the kinds of evil that arouse our deepest emotions and our anger, perhaps this is not what comes to mind, right? Perhaps we think of abuse, of parents neglecting their kids or abusing their kids, of, of adultery, of blatant racism or prejudice, of oppressive governments, of persecution of people for their beliefs, These kinds of things tend to arouse some of our deepest emotions, and rightly so. But these are all evils on the horizontal plane, right? These are all evils between humans. In a God-created world, in a God-centered world, in a God's-glory-directed world, the height of evil is rejecting and ignoring God, living as if he didn't exist or wasn't really very significant living as if he hasn't given us a purpose for life and isn't even now giving us every breath we breathe. And this, all of us have done. Whatever evils we may have not done between one another, we have all done this. The Bible holds no punches in saying no one is righteous, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody gets to God on their own merits. All need grace. And this is, so this is the, this vertical sin against God is the, the height of evil. And, and it's the root of every other evil. So every evil that we commit on the horizontal level between one another is a, first and foremost a rejection of God and his rule. Every time we sin against one another, we first believe the lie that God doesn't know what is best. And so we do what is right in our own eyes and we become filled with and committed to selfishness and pride and bitterness and envy and lust and the like. But there's another description of the sin in Zephaniah that is particularly um, interesting and, and relevant to us. So let me just read one verse here. In verse 12 in chapter 1 says, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. So these people apparently believe in God, right? But they don't believe God is near or active or all that significant. Their belief in God doesn't really move them. Uh, We call this agnosticism, right? And we can either... I mean, some people just come out right and say, like, I'm an agnostic. But I think more often the case is we functionally live like this. We functionally live as agnostics. We, we live as if God doesn't care. 
God isn't really involved in his world, and God won't act. Perhaps he's, perhaps he's there if we need him, but other than that, we're kind of good to go off on our own and do our own thing. And I think as this is called out in Zephaniah, this is a particularly relevant um, temptation that is very present in the Western wealthy church like ours, considered globally, considered historically. We can claim to trust in God, but say ultimately the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. We can claim to trust in and love God, but functionally live as if we put our trust and love our, our stuff, love our position in life, love our power and wealth and health. This isn't to say that if we struggle with these things, if you struggle with these things, God's judgment is coming for you. But it is to say if this describes us and we have no problem with it and we just proudly say the Lord's not going to come, the Lord's not going to come, he doesn't see, he will not do good, he will not do ill, then there is a warning here for a reason. And what is this reason? Well, there's even good news in this warning, right? And so Zephaniah continues with a call for response in chapter 2. A response of repentance. And so this warning is put out there, this, this warning of what is to come is put out there for that they might turn and find God's grace. So look at chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff. Before there come upon, comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And so notice judgment is not the last word. We see that there is the possibility of escaping judgment. And, and this in and of itself is a grace, right? God is calling, he, notice he calls them the shameless nation. They should have shame. They should be shamed about their rejection of God. But he calls this shameless nation to turn and humbly seek him and escape the judgment that their sins deserve. Which means that God isn't out there just coldly meeting out punishments, just, you know, this is what you deserve. God is inviting the wicked and the idolaters and the godless and the adulterers and the abusers and the complacent, everyone, to turn and be saved. Uh, we we're told that God is slow to anger, right? He's patient, enduring. Um, Isaiah 65, 2, God says, I spread out my hands. You get this image. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own desires. God spreads out his hand to them. Uh, Jesus similarly says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. And so this actually forces us to reconsider God's judgments. The, the warning of judgment and even the particular historical judgments throughout time have a redemptive purpose. God intends for them to awaken us out of our drunken stupor, 
Awaken us to the grandness of life, that what the stakes of life, the seriousness of sin, but the greatness of his purposes, if we would only turn. Surely this is why God elsewhere warns of those who say peace, peace, when there is no peace, of essentially saying, hey, it's, it's fine, there's no, no reason, no urgency here, no, nothing really at stake. There is always a temptation to make light of God's response to sin. Still today. Um, I remember speaking to a Mormon friend of mine a few years back, and he said that his parents were not Mormon, didn't believe in Jesus. Um, but he believed, and I think this is consistent with Mormon teaching, that they would still have a glorious afterlife, though perhaps not as glorious as he would, um, because they were basically good people. Where is the motivation to turn to Jesus in that? Where is the motivation for, on his part to share Jesus in that? It's basically non-existent. But I think, I think for ourselves that, that can be convicting as well. Um, how is our sense of urgency for evangelism? Um, are we willing to not only speak of, but believe ourselves the seriousness of sin and the severity of God's judgment towards sin? Now, as Dane Ortland said, well, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said in that quote, it is almost, it is very difficult, it is almost impossible to face these truths. Our hearts recoil. Part of our sin nature is that we don't see sin rightly. We refuse to. And so we actually, we need to behold more than our sin before a holy God. Like we can't sit in that spot. We naturally move from there. And if we do not see God's grace, we run away from God just seeing that. And so we have to move on. We have to we have to appropriately grapple at the same time with God's love and mercy and kindness, even his joy. And I do think at present there is just as much need to do this. Um, there is certainly a temptation to downplay God's holiness and his justice, but I think there is equally a temptation, and we have failed to also wrestle with uh, his goodness. Failed to make much of his desire and purposes to satisfy his holy anger and show grace to evildoers. There's a temptation to cause people to fear God, but give them little hope of loving him and enjoying him and him them. God doesn't sit back just content to let people go whichever way they will go. No, God goes to great lengths to pursue us, to rescue us from our sin and the judgment it deserves. Uh, this is part of his nature, to make a way. I mean, from, from before time began, God planned, and throughout the Old Testament, we see that God provided a way. And then in Jesus, God provides a way for us to draw near to him and to find his heart of grace. God so loved the world. God loves us. And so as fearful and terrifying and hard to grasp as the opening lines of Zephaniah, the closing lines are equally, on the, are 
equally comforting and joy-inducing and striking and surprising, and I think we have a hard time accepting them as well. So we're going to read the last um, sections in, in a couple different parts. First, verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. It says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord and find it. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Now, one of just kind of a reading the Bible kind of note here, one of the feature of the prophets in particular is they often point to things um, in the future, but they often point to things in the near term, in generation, within a generation or two, and then sometimes they point to things in the far term with Jesus or the final redemption that is to come. And sometimes it's not, and sometimes they point to both kind of in the same passage, and it's not always easy to kind of distinguish between the two. So in Zephaniah, the, these warnings of judgment that we've seen, uh, in part, will come to fruition within a generation of, of uh, Zephaniah speaking when the Babylonians come in and conquer Judah and Jerusalem. Similarly, some of what we just read there of God having a remnant and, and bringing a people uh, back will come to pass within uh, about a century as, um, as some of the Jews will return to Judah and Jerusalem and they will begin to rebuild the temple. But there's more going on here than just those historical fulfillments. Um, this language certainly looks beyond all of that. And it looks to God's fulfillment of his, uh, of his promises, of his covenants, of his purposes. Um, so just real briefly, we've talked about it before, but God had promised to bless the descendants of Abraham. Um, God had put this plan into place long time ago to bless the descendants of Abraham and through them to bless all the peoples of the earth. Um, the descendants of Abraham don't stay faithful to the covenant. They don't stay faithful to God. And yet, God's promised blessing does not fail. And what we see here is that this is what is going on. God will establish a humble and purified and righteous people in contrast to the proud and wicked and faithless who receive judgment. He's going to change the speech of the nations to so that people, and not just Israel, but of, all, of people from all families of the earth, so that they can call upon the name of the Lord. Again, judgment is not the last word. Uh, even the call for repentance is not the last word. Just God put it, sit out there, hopefully somebody will respond. No, God promises that he, he will be God to a people, that there will be a people who call upon him, that he will purify them and give them lips to call on him. Now, perhaps many a sermon 
perhaps different aspects of the Bible, different parts of the Bible might stop there. You know, this is good news. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's great news there. But Zephaniah continues. And in this next last section of Zephaniah, we get a glimpse into the very heart of God, into God's disposition towards these people. So look at again the verses we started the service with, verse 14 through 17. Sing aloud. So at this point, God's, these people have reason to sing. If you can just contrast that with the first section of the book that we looked at. They are told, and this isn't just like a cold command, sing even though everything around you looks horrible. No, everything, everything is good. You have abundant reason. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. And their enemies weren't just their human enemies. God's judgment was against their sin. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. And that's good news. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So did you notice God's heart and disposition towards these people who call upon the name of the Lord? Um, He's not the God who just kind of coldly forgives them. Oh, I accept you. He doesn't just offer objective legal justification alone, as important as that is. No, he dwells with his people, rejoices over them with gladness, quiets them by his love, and exalts over them with loud singing. I've made this uh, analogy before, but I have a daughter who likes to sing loudly. And she sings loudly because she's happy. She's full of joy. God exults over us with loud singing. Whereas God's presence with with his people at the beginning of Zephaniah, with those who were in rebellion against him, was a thing of, of, of fear, a terrifying thing. Here, towards his people, God's presence is a source of comfort and strength and joy and delight. They have nothing to fear. Even God's holy and righteous anger towards sin is not a reason for fear anymore because they, not because they're sinless, but because they are his. Dane Ortland writes, And just as we can hardly fathom the divine ferocity awaiting those outside of Christ, it is equally true that we can hardly fathom the divine tenderness already resting now on those in Christ. We might feel a little bashful or uncomfortable or even guilty in emphasizing God's tenderness as intensely as his wrath, but the Bible feels no such discomfort, as we clearly see here. And it's, it's, it's really striking, the contrast here, right? Between the beginning of Zephaniah and the end of Zephaniah. And what this does is reveal the role and significance of Jesus 
in God's eternal plan. Because our position before God, whether it's whether he visits us in judgment or in blessing, is determined by our relationship with Christ. Are we in him or are we out of him? Do we belong to Christ or are we outside of Christ? The, the question is not, are we good enough? Are we moral and ethical and religious or respectable or lovely in of, a, of ourselves? The question is, have we come to God in Christ through faith? God's aim is to draw us to himself through Christ. And as he does that, to change our hearts and our minds to, to love and sing and worship and submit ourselves to him. And so the takeaway here, the takeaway to seeing God to be both vengeful in punishing sin and joyful in dwelling with his redeemed people is not just that God is fickle. Sometimes he's this, sometimes he's that, and hopefully you get on God's good side. The takeaway is we're not left guessing how he will respond to us, how he will be towards us. No, all of scripture, including here, is meant to drive us to Christ and the cross. It is the gospel, it is the cross of Christ that is all determinative. Do we boast in Christ? Is he the source of our hope? Or are we ashamed of him? Do we find him a bit unnecessary? Um, Paul in 1 Corinthians speaks to boasting. I mean, this is the all-determinative, like, this is what matters about you the most. This is how humanity is divided. Do you boast in the cross of Christ and God's salvation for you? Or do you find, look for another way? As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we have this tendency to downplay both of the both ends of this, both aspects of God's character. To neither feel the full terror of his judgment if we are outside of him, nor for those of us in him to feel the full weight of, of comfort of his love. There's no middle ground. We, we don't live somewhere in the middle of this. God is not mild in his affections towards us. He doesn't oscillate back and forth every day depending on how we're feeling, how we're doing. No, if we are in Christ, he is for us. He is rejoicing over us. And even when we sin, he's fighting for us. He doesn't temporarily kind of take a step back waiting on us to get our position together to feel bad enough to to kind of atone for our own sins. No, our position is in Christ as God's beloved. And this isn't on hold every time that we sin or struggle. Or feel weak. If we are in Christ, if we have sought refuge in him, put our hope in him, have been given his spirit and are reborn inside, he sings and rejoices over us. And all of his mighty power, his divine warrior role is working for us, not against us. And he will be victorious. And we with him. Let's pray.